As you do, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. To John chapter 1, we are continuing on this morning, our series through the book of John, series entitled That You May Believe. We're going to be finishing chapter 1 this morning. So we'll be looking at John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, and we'll be reading through verse 51. Uh, If you've arrived there, I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, reading through end of the chapter, verse 51. Here we go. The author John records this. He says, The next day John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about, the, it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and said, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called... Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and he found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see. Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And this morning, I want us to just consider this idea, Discipleship 101. Discipleship 101. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Discipleship 101. This is is a fun text. This is an interesting text of Scripture. I like it because this is one of those texts, I think, that just kind of forces us to go back to some of the basics of what it means to be a Christian, some of the basics of our spiritual walk. Pastor Mike, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it back to the basics this morning. So if you're here looking for something brand new that you've never encountered before, you might get it, but 
more than likely, this is going to be a reminder, but it's a reminder that we desperately need. We're going to go back to class, back to school, Discipleship 101. Here it is. I want to start by just saying this. We will reproduce what we are. We will reproduce what we are. I've learned this truth as a parent in a very distinct way. Uh, I know I use my kids a lot, but they're great examples, especially of discipleship. But I've learned it as a parent. Some of you who are parents will understand what I'm about to say as well. And even if you're not a parent, you'll probably get this too. You know, as my daughters have grown, so if you're visiting, I have two daughters, uh, seven and uh, nine. Took me a minute. They're seven and nine. Uh, It's been a weekend. Uh, Two daughters. And as, as they've grown, they've developed aspects of their personalities that stand out to us. And so when we notice these characteristics, there's typically one thing we always ask, right? When this characteristic kind of pops its head up to the surface, one question we always ask, Aliyah and I, I wonder where she got that from. And what we're actually saying is, which one of us do they resemble at this moment? So for example, right? They're not here. I could say it. Thea has a little sassy side to her. When she's feeling it, you can't tell her anything. Well, clearly that's Aaliyah, right? (laughs) She's not here to defend herself this morning, so I'm going to go in. Uh, Emery has this brilliant intellectual side. Clearly, that's me, right? Grandpa, Grandpa, that's right. That's Grandpa. I'm sorry. Obviously, that was a joke because we all know Aaliyah's smarter than me. That's why I'm still in school trying to keep up. But it's interesting, right, that we look for aspects of ourselves in our children. I mean, parents, am I right? Like, we, we, we judge their personalities by ourselves. But it makes sense because what we know, though we may not say it directly, is that we reproduce what we are. I'm reminded of a quote that I read from one author where he said, we, we teach what we know, but we reproduce what we are. So somewhat intrinsically, as Aliyah and I look at our children, we look for aspects of ourselves because we know to some degree or another, we will reproduce what we are. Now, what, what I want you to know this morning is that that truth is not just true on a physical level. It's true on a spiritual level as well. For us as Christians, spiritually, we will reproduce what we are. Let me say it like this. Our discipleship, or lack thereof, will reveal what kind of disciple we are. As many of you are well aware, discipleship is a key aspect of what we as a church believe we're all about. Right? Even our mission statement, by and large, centers around this idea of discipleship, right? We exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. We are, as a church, longing to see disciples produced who then, in turn, produce more disciples. Discipleship is key to our spiritual growth as individuals, but it's also key to our growth and our health as a church, And the type of disciples we reproduce will reveal to some degree or another the type of disciple that we are. So here at the end of John 1, John teaches a little bit about discipleship. Because even at the onset of Jesus' ministry, there is an emphasis by the author of John on discipleship. Well, why? 
Because the entire purpose of this book is to make disciples, to present the beauty and the majesty and the worth of Jesus so that by reading these words, that's what John says, right? So that by reading these words, some would come to believe in Jesus and have eternal life. That's discipleship. So here at the beginning, John places an emphasis on that discipleship. Excuse me. And so as we read about Jesus' first disciples here at the end of John 1, we really do get a crash course, if you will, on what discipleship looks like. That's the title, right? Discipleship 101. But even more than that, we see the blessing that comes with being a disciple. And that is so important. Because often we think of making disciples as a task to be completed rather than a blessing to live in. So this morning, as we walk through the end of chapter one, there are only two things I want you to see this morning. I got two points for you. Subpoints, Yes, but two points. I want you to see the process of discipleship, and I want you to see the promise of discipleship. So here's the first thing I want to look at. I want you to see the process of discipleship. The process of discipleship. So look with me again here at the first 10 verses. John's writing, he says, The next day John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And what these ten verses highlight for us is the calling of the first disciples, but we actually see here the process of discipleship. So this event, right, we'll give a little context, is taking place a day after where we left off last week. So last week we saw how how John gave his testimony as to how he came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Do you remember that? John's out there baptizing. Initially the the, the Pharisees or the, the priests, the Levites come and they're like, man, who are you? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, then who are you? What are you doing? He said, I'm just one declaring make straight the way of the Lord. That was his purpose. That's what he was all about. And and so then the next day, as John's explaining how he came to know, he says, listen, when Jesus showed up, I didn't actually know who he was. I didn't know him. But God, the one who sent me to baptize, told me that at some point you're going to see my spirit descend like a dove and the one on whom it rests, that's the Messiah. And so John's out there baptizing and at some point Jesus shows up and John witnesses all this. And so he testifies, I know that this is the Son of God because what God said would happen, happened. And so now we're a day after that. 
It's the following day, and John the Baptist is with two of his disciples. And so as he's with his disciples, right, baptizing uh, in Judea, it says that Jesus passed by, and John points to Jesus. He's with two of his disciples, and John the Baptist points to Jesus, and he just says, look, the Lamb of God. We don't have any other details about the conversation. Maybe that's all that was needed to be said. Because then in verse 37, we read the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So here's the beginning of the process of discipleship. The the process of discipleship begins with an introduction. In other words, John the Baptist simply introduces people to Jesus. Now, a couple of things that are worth mentioning as we consider introducing people to Jesus. We saw this last week. I want to hit it again here. Introducing people to Jesus, it takes a level of humility. It takes a level of humility to be willing to even introduce people to Jesus. Well, what do I mean? Well, we talked about it last week. John the Baptist had a following, but his goal was not to build his own following. His goal was not to be the best preacher in the land. His goal wasn't to impress the Pharisees and the religious leaders. John's goal was to introduce people to Jesus so that they then would follow Jesus. And again, going back to last week, what made this possible was that John the Baptist was clear about his role. He was clear about who he was, but most importantly, he understood the worth of Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, well, yeah, I I got that, right? It takes humility. But you might be sitting there thinking, what does that have to do with me? I'm not trying to be the best preacher. You're thinking, that's what we have you for, Michael. Thank you. I appreciate that, right? You're not trying to be, as a joke, you're not trying to be the best preacher. You're not trying to gain a following. You're like, I get this. But the reason I'm pressing in here is because we too can often, sometimes unknowingly, have ulterior motives when it comes to introducing people to Jesus. So the goal is not to introduce people to Jesus so that we can see new breed grow. The goal is not to introduce people to Jesus so that we have something to say when it rolls around time for gospel moments at at CG so we won't be embarrassed. The goal is not to introduce people to Jesus so we can have more people fill slots on service teams so you don't have to work with kids as much. The goal is not to introduce people to Jesus so that our church budget will grow. The goal, and all of those things by and large are fine, maybe not the service one, but the goal is to introduce people to Jesus because Jesus is worthy. That he is the word made flesh. That he is the radiance of the glory of God. That he brings grace and truth. That salvation is found in no one else but him. It's Jesus is worthy. And believing this takes humility. Because it forces us to recognize that we are not worthy. Like Jesus is worthy. But there's something else I want to kind of press into here. For faithful discipleship to begin... We have to actually introduce people to Jesus. Again, you might be thinking, of course, Michael, we know that. That's the basics, right? We tell people about Jesus. No, 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 stick with me. I think one of my fears for the church in America, one of my fears for this church, is that we've gotten really good at introducing people to religious ideas, but not Jesus. People know what we think about politics, but they don't know Jesus. People know what we believe about a sexual ethic, but they don't know Jesus. 
People know what we think is right or wrong and we will always tell them. But people don't actually know the Jesus we claim to serve. People may even know the blessings that we have experienced because of Jesus and still miss Jesus. What I'm trying to get you to see is that if we get everything else right, but we fail to actually introduce people to Jesus, we very well may be making disciples, but they won't be disciples of Jesus. And that's what makes the simplicity of John's introduction so powerful. Look, the Lamb of God. Here he is. Here's Jesus. And so for us to be a people who actually make disciples of Jesus, it starts by just introducing them to Jesus. But there's a second part to this process, right? After an introduction comes, the process of discipleship moves from an introduction to following Jesus, to actually following Jesus. So, so go back to our story, right? After John introduces these two people, look, the Lamb of God, here he is. The next step in the process for those two is they just go and start following Jesus. I mean, look again at verses 37 through 39. It says, two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. So John the Baptist begins. He says, look, the son or, or the lamb of God. And then they just turn and they follow Jesus. And so here's what we know. John the Baptist at this point has two disciples with him. One is Andrew and the other one is unnamed. Now it doesn't really matter for our story but I'm gonna throw it out here because it's come up later in John. I think that the unnamed disciple throughout the gospel of John is John himself, the author, right? There's parts later on where one disciple is referred to as the one loved by Jesus or the beloved of Jesus. I think that's the author John. There's reasons for that. Maybe I'll flesh them out down the road or you can pick my brain afterwards. But I think that John, I actually think it's a posture of humility. John's not trying to put himself in Jesus' story. So I think he's the other disciple who's here with Andrew. But regardless, John the Baptist has two disciples. And after pointing out Jesus, the two immediately leave John the Baptist and they follow Jesus. Jesus sees them and he asks the question. It's a very important question. What are you looking for? Now, I need you to feel the weight of that question this morning. This isn't Jesus being mean, right? He's not, he's not bothered that they have started following. He's not like, what are you doing? Why are you following me? No, this is Jesus just asking, okay, why do you want to follow me? What is it that you want by being my disciple? Now, think of all the things they could have said. We want you to make all things right. We want you to kick out Rome so that we can have our land back. We want you to fix the corrupt religious system of our day. We want to see the kingdom of God made manifest. They could have said all of those things. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But that's not what they say. Right? Go back to verse 38. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now let's be honest. When we first read that at first glance, it seems like they ignore Jesus' question. Doesn't it? What do you want from me? And their response is, hey, where are you staying, Jesus? It's almost like, hey, we don't want to answer that. But in fact, 
Their question back to Jesus is an answer to the question, and it's a profound answer to the question. See, when they come to Jesus, their main concern is not any of those things that, they, that I just listed. Their main concern is not what Jesus can do. They just want to be where he is. They just want to follow him wherever he goes. Now, church, I need you to get this. Following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, requires that we just be content with Jesus. That we're just content with Jesus. Let me, let me give it to you like this. The beauty of following Jesus is not that if you follow Jesus, everything in your life will go well. The beauty of following Jesus is not that you won't face dark moments and low valleys. The beauty of following Jesus is not that everything you want in this life will be yours. The beauty of following Jesus is you get Jesus. He is the treasure in and of himself. And if we're trying to be disciples or make disciples based on anything other than Jesus, we are discipling people to follow something that will never ultimately satisfy them. I need you to, I need you to hear me. Jesus has to be our satisfaction. He has to be enough. We follow him. Because here, here's the truth of the matter. If, if we disciple people so that they look for their satisfaction in the church, the church is going to fail them at some point in time. Some of us have experienced the sting of the church. The church will fail. Right? If, if, we are, if we are teaching people to be satisfied in the comfort and the peace that Jesus brings, let's call a spade a spade. Sometimes things aren't comfortable or peaceful. They will be left unsatisfied. But when Jesus is what we are teaching people to treasure and to follow, he will never fail. I mean, just think about the Great Commission itself. The call for the church to actually go and make disciples. Think about the end of that, right? Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then how does it end? And remember, I am with you always to the end of the earth. The promise it's not that, man, if you go make disciples, I'll make sure everything goes easy for you. It's not that if you go make disciples, I'll make sure that your lives are protected, that you're never hurt. It's not that you'll have full bank accounts, full bellies. It's not that you'll be married with three kids in the white picket fence. It's that, no, 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 what's the promise? Hey, go make disciples, and here's the beauty. I'm with you. And Jesus is enough. Again, the beauty of following Jesus is that we get Jesus. And that's what these new disciples experience. Right? Verse 39, Jesus says, come and see. So they went and they saw where he was staying. And this is beautiful. And they stayed with him. They stayed with him. They just wanted Jesus. And once again, my fear is not only that we aren't introducing people to Jesus, but that we're not actually calling people to follow Jesus, to know him, to savor him, and then the hard part, to be obedient to him. But this is the process of discipleship. But it doesn't stop there, right? Because if we follow him and if we are obedient to him, then it will require, based on Matthew 28, that we actually reproduce disciples. 
Right? That's the third step in the process. First, they're introduced to Jesus. Then they follow Jesus. And finally, they reproduce disciples. Or we could say they introduce more people to Jesus and start the cycle all over again. I mean, look at verses 40 and 42. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. And so I love this, right? Andrew meets Jesus. Then the first thing that we have recorded that he does is he goes and gets somebody else. He goes and gets his brother Simon, whose name Jesus changes to Peter. That's how we know him. This is the Apostle Peter. And Andrew brings Peter to meet Jesus. And it's beautiful because you watch the cycle start all over again. And all Andrew does was simply introduce Peter to Jesus. Andrew's introduced to Jesus. He goes and grabs somebody else and introduces them to Jesus. Right? He says, hey man, we found the Messiah. His name is Jesus. You got to come and meet him. And Peter goes. So there's something I want you to see about this that's so encouraging to me. Andrew wasn't a trained theologian. He had known Jesus for all of 22 minutes. He didn't have all the answers about how Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy. He didn't even fully know what Jesus was going to do. He simply knew, I've met this Jesus, and he seems like somebody worth talking about. So let me go grab somebody else and introduce them to Jesus. Here's why I point this out. We can get so afraid that if we try to introduce someone to Jesus, we aren't going to have all the answers. We get so afraid that people won't want to hear what we have to say. We are afraid that people will think that we are crazy. Well, let me just encourage you this morning. You are not going to have all the answers. And some people will not want to hear what you have to say to them. And some people are going to think you're a little bit crazy. But some people will want you to introduce them to Jesus. Some people will want you to tell them about who he is. And if you are in Christ, you might not be a theologian, you might have not been to seminary, you might not have all the answers, you may be a Christian for all of 20 minutes, but if you are in Christ, you, eno you know enough to tell someone about who he is, because he is the one who has saved your soul. Sometimes we won't have all the answers. Sometimes we won't have the theological rebuttals or the apologetic arguments, but what we do have is a testimony that I was once this and I met this man, and I'm now this. That there was a moment when I was at my lowest, and he met me, and he showed me love. There was a moment when I felt like nothing could turn around, and he turned it all around. We know enough to introduce people to Jesus. We exist as New Breed Church to make disciples. And this is the process of discipleship. By God's grace, is a process that when we are faithful, not only sees us grow as disciples, but sees new disciples made as we are being faithful disciples. Now you might be thinking, well, Michael, I get it. I do. I understand that. Right? This, I've heard this every moment that I've been in church. And maybe you're asking the question, you know, I'm just going to be honest. 
Is this really worth it? I'm so glad that you asked that question because it sets me up for my second truth perfectly. I just want you to see this. Not only the process of discipleship, but I want you to see the promise of discipleship. Look again with me at verses 43 through the end of the chapter. I'm going to read it again. It says, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israel in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly I tell you. Side note, There are 25 times in the book of John where Jesus says, truly I tell you, or some translation would say, truly, truly I say unto you, verily, verily I speak. Anytime you see that in the book of John, Jesus is about to drop a statement that you need to pay attention to. Truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So let me, I know we just read it, let me go back through this now kind of walk through what's going on because this is amazing. So so another day has passed at this point. Jesus now actually finds Philip. So we've got Andrew, right? We've got potentially John, the author. We've got Peter. And now Jesus goes and he finds Philip. And he says, follow me. And Philip follows him. So we have the first two steps in the process for Philip. Now here's the third in verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So again, Philip's first act, at least recorded act as a follower of Jesus was to start evangelizing. And he goes and tells Nathanael, he says, basically, look, I just met Jesus. You got to come meet him. The Messiah is here. Jesus of Nazareth. And, Phil, and, and Nathaniel's response is a little different than my, what you might think. In verse 46, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? So this is the first time we've had not a like, all right, here I am. I'm on my way coming to see Jesus. And Nathaniel's not sure, right? Philip comes and says, the Messiah is here. We found him. He's Joseph's son. He's from Nazareth. And here you've got Nathaniel. I mean, but can anything good really come out of Nazareth? But in essence... Nathaniel's filling another prophecy, fulfilling another prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. Nathaniel is fulfilling that prophecy. He's looking at Jesus saying, there is nothing about this man that says to me that he is the Messiah. So what is Philip's response? Does he enter into a theological discourse? Does he start tracing through all the prophetic literature? Nope. Just come and see. Come and see. 
But this is what I want you to pay attention to, verse 47. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, so Jesus is speaking about Nathanael as he's approaching, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So this kind of rocks Nathanael a little bit, right? And he's like, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So there are two things that are interesting here. First, what Jesus initially says to Nathanael, right? First, he says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, let me, let me try to parse this out. This is where it gets, this is fun for me. Y'all might be like, this is too much. We'll deal with it, all right? So this is, this is fun for me. The word for deceit there could actually be translated as guile. And that's the same word that's used for Jacob in Genesis 27 when Jacob steals Esau's birthright through deception. He's said to be a deceitful, he got it through deceit or through guile. All right, so, so Jesus is making a connection here back to Genesis 27. You might be thinking, man, that's a stretch, Michael. Bible says deceit in other places. All right, hold on, stay with me. But this shocks Nathaniel when he says it. So clearly Nathaniel is like, Something bigger is going on here. And Nathaniel's like, hold on, how do you know me? So I think by Jesus making a reference to Jacob, more so than what he says, what he's referencing, Nathaniel's kind of taking a step back and he's like, all right, wait a minute, wait a minute, how do you know me? Now stay with me. Jesus makes this statement, a statement that some have argued is one of the more cryptic statements in the book of John by Jesus, where Jesus says in verse 48, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now we know that Jesus isn't simply saying, hey, as I was walking up to go get Philip, I kind of passed by and saw you sitting over there, caught a glimpse of you, I saw you. Because Nathaniel wouldn't have been shocked by that. Nathaniel would be like, yeah, I saw you too, so what? There's more going on. Because notice the response. Just by Jesus saying, when I saw you under the fig tree, like I knew you then, Nathaniel's response changes to, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So something in this brief exchange is deeper than we realize. But now notice the last two verses again. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, here it is, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, so that's now a reference to Genesis 28 to Jacob again. All right, so you, do you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, the birthright? Good, so I don't have to re repeat it? All right, so some of y'all changed your tone at that one. All right, let me give you the story real quick. It's like, yes, we've got it. All right, so I'm just going to move on like you know it. Never mind. All right, here we go. So the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob is the second born. Esau's the firstborn. So Jacob wants Esau's birthright. And so he deceives through deceit, right? Through guile. He steals the birthright from Esau. Now at the end of 27, right, Esau's like, this might not, or Jacob's like, this might not have been the greatest idea to steal his birthright. And Esau, and Jacob's mom's like, yeah, you gotta go. Like Esau's gonna kill you. And so Jacob takes off. He starts running, right? And so at the beginning of Genesis 28, we catch up with Jacob on the run. Jacob is exhausted. He's tired. He's worn out. How do we know this? Because he lays down to sleep and he literally takes a rock to make it his pillow. Like you got to be some kind of tired to use a rock as a pillow. And he goes to sleep. Now here it is. While he's sleeping, Jacob has a dream. Do you remember the dream? Genesis 28 verses 12 through 16. And he dreamed 
A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring to the land, or the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. He says, look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now here it is, when Jacob awoke, From his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So the dream of angels ascending and descending is evidence to Jacob that God is with him at that place. And what does Jesus say in verse 51? Truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of God of man. So let me offer a little speculation, and this isn't just my speculation. There are a lot of, there's some people who are a lot smarter than me that speculate this as well, so I feel like I'm on good ground. Here's what I think's going on. So, so the symbolism of a fig tree, right? So fig trees were evidence of kind of prosperity in the ancient Near East. And so what would often happen is, is, is Pharisees and those who studied the law would sit under a fig tree by themselves to study the Word of God. So here's what I think's happening. I think that Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree, studying, thinking about, recounting the story of Jacob. And I think he had a spiritual moment there. I think he was communing with God as a faithful Israelite. Because Jesus isn't lying. He's a faithful follower of Yahweh. And I think that there was something in that moment. You know what I'm talking about. You have those quiet where you just say, you are with the Lord. And, and he is doing something. And so I don't know, maybe, speculation, maybe he's wrestling through Jacob's stories. Like, God, help me to be a, a person who, who, who's not like Jacob and doesn't use deceitful means. But, but let me realize the blessing. I want to know that you are with me. And Jesus, as he is, as, as Nathaniel is communing with God, Jacob says, hey, when you were in that intimate moment, I saw you. What is Jesus saying? You were having a moment with me. You were, you were talking with me. You were fellowshipping with me. And then he doubles down on that, right? Because he goes back to Jacob when he says that you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's saying just like Jacob saw that and said God is with us, you're going to see it happen to me and know that God is with you. That I am Emmanuel. God with us. In essence, Jesus tells him the whole gospel. That when you could not get to me, I came to you. That I am God with you. That I am walking this earth. That I, and Jesus goes on to live the perfect life that we should have lived. He dies the death that we deserve to die. He's crucified. He's buried. He's raised from the dead. And now we have access to God through Jesus because Jesus invites us to place our faith in him, to repent of our sins, and to have eternal life. So here it is. Let's answer the question. Here's the promise of discipleship. The promise is that if we are his disciples, then God is with us. The promise of being his disciple is that Jesus will be with you to see you safely through to eternal life. The promise is that if he is with us, then he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Let me make it plain. Being a disciple of Jesus is worth it 
because Jesus will be our prize. And there is nothing greater than Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we would be a people who are marked as faithful disciples. God, that we would take seriously the call that you have placed on our lives to go to all the nations, making disciples, baptizing, teaching, everything that you have commanded, believing that the hope that we have, the promise that we have, is that you are with us. God, if we're honest, new breed has struggled to make disciples. And it's not because we don't have a testimony. And it's not because we don't know you. And so I pray, first and foremost, God, that you would help us see Jesus as the greatest treasure. Because I believe that if we truly see him as our treasure, there will be nothing that can stop us from introducing people to him. We give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.